when we first moved to Wodonga, we moved here 10 years ago from Sydney. And when we first moved here, one of the f- first things that stood out to us was how AFL mad Victorians are. Uh, I think in one of those, you know, the, the announcements, he spots, I think I made a comment early on uh, talking about AFL as being the state religion of Victoria. And Merrin said to me afterwards, she goes, I don't think that was very well received. I, I don't think they appreciated you saying that. And um, funnily enough, though, fast forward just a few years and our family is well and truly converted to that state religion and we are solid Richmond supporters now and eagerly anticipating the start of the season again in a few weeks' time. But when we started following AFL uh, and started following Richmond, they seemed to be a team that were made up of just individuals. I mean, and by that I mean that there was a whole bunch of people on the field who were the team, but they all seemed to be just playing as you know, themselves. In in fact, if they had a team strategy at all, it was primarily about just get the ball to to some of the stars and so their stats would look really good. And the result of playing in such a way was Richmond, who had been fifth on the ladder in in 2015, the following year came in at 13th and had lost almost twice as many games as they had won in that season. But then in 2017, the next year, things had changed. Richmond seemed to have an entirely new approach to how they were playing the game. And now they functioned actually as a team. It was much less about the individuals and about their stats and about who got the ball when and all of that kind of stuff, much less about the individual and much more about how all the individual efforts contributed to the team. And so that year, Richmond won the Premiership for the first time in 37 years. And the team emphasis actually meant that uh, last year, with players out due to injury and some of their stars having quieter years, they were still able to win the competition for the third time in the past four years. The way that Richmond had moved from just being a bunch of individuals from just being a bunch of single pins that are popping balloons all over the place. The way that they moved from that to being a team together, to being united, to being an actual unified team in reality, it changed everything for them and for their supporters as well. Uh, it, It was their unity. It was Richmond working together as one that made all the difference for them. And I want to say that the same is true for the church. The church is a gathering of individuals who all come together in one place at the same time each week. But if that's all we are, if we are just individuals who happen to be in the same place, then we could just as easily be, I don't know, a movie watching club. We could just as easily be spectators at the netball. We would have just as much effect on each other and on our world and in our community. But when the church comes together in unity, when we come together as one, that's the difference maker. Listen to something that Jesus prayed in in John chapter 17. He, He prays 
to, to God initially for himself and what God is, is doing through him. He then prays for his immediate disciples that he has then. And then he expands his prayer out to pray for all those who will trust in him and follow him throughout the ages. So he's praying for us, the church today. And he says, in his prayer, he says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So Jesus prays that his followers who make up the church would come to complete unity. And it is this unity that shows or proves to the world that God has truly sent him and that God truly loves us. In other words, he prays such a way because the unity of the church is a, if not the, key factor in our witness to the world. And conversely then, if we are not unified, then that acts to discredit the message of God's love to the world in Jesus. So our unity is a big deal. And experientially, we already know that that unity is significant. If we even leave aside the aspect of, of our witness to Christ, we know the impact that division and disunity has, whether it's in a family, a workplace, or social groups. You know, we know the pain and the stress of disunity. It makes everything unpleasant, especially when it had previously been harmonious. You go from having significant and enjoyable relationships to just kind of functionally relating to other people. And you just do so around the basics and around the necessities. All warmth has been lost as each party just kind of holds their own. We also see the impact of disunity and division at a larger level as well. Politics. Look at how different state lockdowns has turned state against state in Australia. Look at the the riots in reaction to the election in in the US. Race, gender, sexuality, economics, health, environment, these larger issues that there is so much and different positions within, there is so much that would naturally just tear us apart. There is so much that would naturally cause separation and distance between us. And then the church is no exception. Despite Jesus' prayer for our unity, we bring our differences with us to church and they can divide us. They might be around theological matters, about what we understand about creation, or about the role of women in leadership, or about tongues or baptism or such. Or they might be more more personal matters, such as whether or not you like this pastor or the style of music, or whether they do the things here that they did in your old church. Recognising this propensity for division in the church, Paul wrote to the Ephesians to say, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He says we need to keep the unity of the Spirit. That is, for us, in Jesus and in the Spirit that he has given us, we are already united. He goes on to say, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, 
One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We are one in Christ. We are that joined together pile of pins. And what we need to do then is do all that we can to keep that unity. And keeping that unity preserves the the balloon rather than causing explosions and, and destructions. We need to express in our relationship with each other what is already real and to not let anything get in the way of that. And so the psalmist in Psalm 133, the, the last of the songs of ascent that we're looking at, he declares, as Beth has already read to us, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Now, the thing with this collection of psalms is that we don't necessarily know the context in which they were written. So this psalm that, that's, that said is written by David, this psalm could be a heart cry of David in the absence of unity. He might see divisions and conflict going on all around him and he he looks then at God's people and he knows that it shouldn't be like this, that it should be better than this and he longs then for unity amongst them, knowing just how good it is and this is then his cry, oh, how good it would be for God's people to be dwelling together in unity. Or it could be the opposite. It could be, in fact, a celebration of what he sees happening before him. As all the different tribes of Israel come together in Jerusalem for a festival and they are all together as one celebrating God. And here he witnesses the unity of God's people and his heart then overflows in this declaration of praise of what's going on. Either way, David then goes on to describe just how good and pleasant this unity is. He says, It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for the blessing of the for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Now, I don't know when the last time was that you poured oil on your head so that it ran down your beard and, and got into the collar. Uh, I've been growing my beard especially, but I still you know, haven't, haven't done this yet. Um, so I don't know when, it's been, when the last time it was for you that you did it. But maybe, maybe you've downed a nice cold can of Coke after mowing the lawn on a hot summer's day. Maybe you've snuggled into your bed on a cold and wet day with your favourite book. Maybe you've won three premierships in the past four years. (laughs) Maybe maybe you fit back into a pair of jeans for the first time that you've not been able to wear for, for years now. Or maybe you're putting aloe vera onto fresh sunburn and just feeling the sting of it just fade. Whatever it is for you, it may not be oil down your head, but the idea of it is just this one, this moment of bliss and of satisfaction. But it's more than that too. This imagery of the oil, you know, in the Old Testament, the anointing of oil was often used as a symbol of God's presence. And so the imagery of this oil running down the head, actually, that feels really good. 
I, I might go home and do it. But, but the oil running down the head and down the beard and then going so much so that it's then going onto the collar. It's actually this sign of a generous abundance of what's being poured out. And so as the church gathers in unity, God is abundantly present, like oil running down the head and beard and down the face and down under your clothes. God is abundantly present in and with each one of us. So when there is division and disunity, we fail at those times to see God in the other person. We fail to see and we potentially block his work in our midst and we fail to sense his presence with us. But when we experience unity together, a unity that is made possible by and through Jesus, we recognize and we enjoy the abundance of his presence with us. This unity, the psalmist goes on to say, is not just this this sign of the abundance of God's presence, like oil poured on the head, but it's also, he says, like the dew on Mount Hermon. Not related to Uncle Herman at all. Spelt differently. This, so Mount Herman, this was a mountain that was significantly higher than the one upon which Jerusalem sat. And so the psalmist likens unity to the dew and the moisture that would be collected on, on this higher mountain and imagines if, if all the moisture that came to this mountain came down and was somehow put onto this drop, and to this lower mountain, and to this drier land of Israel. How good would that be? Such, such dew, such moisture coming in such an unforeseen way to, to this place would bring refreshment and would be literally life-giving to this dry place. And so it is too with unity in the church. Where there are divisions in the church, for us to come together can actually then be soul-destroying. But when there is harmony amongst God's people, when there is unity between them, then it is a blessing. And it's ironic that this is a psalm of ascent, but it speaks of the blessings of unity as things that descend. It runs down the beard. It's dew that falls on Mount Zion. See, the source of our unity comes not from us, but it comes from God. We are united in Christ. By Christ, we are one in him. And so we receive this unity as as a gift. And in receiving it as such, we then need to make sure that we look after it and make every effort to keep it. Because as the psalm finishes, it says that that Mount Zion, this place where God has localised his presence, the, the place where his people gather together. And so if we were to contemporize it out of Israel's history and into us today, we could say in the church that that is where the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Notice that last phrase, life forevermore. It's life in abundance. It's fullness of life. We might even say it's eternal life. And so we come back then to why the unity of the church is so important. Because as Jesus says, our unity proves the gospel. And our disunity then would discredit the gospel. So our witness of Jesus to our families, to our friends, to our community, let alone to the world, 
is affected by our unity as his people. The thing is, the church attracts all kinds of people. And not all of them will be your kind of people. And in any other social setting, you could avoid them. You would have no need to interact with them or or even to be pleasant to them. That's what happens everywhere else. And that's what we would do naturally, no different to what the world does. But in Jesus, we supernaturally move past those things that might naturally divide us and we see Christ in the other and we come together in him. See, when our unity in Christ supersedes the things that would separate us, then the power of God in the gospel is available for all to see, is revealed for all to see. The the witness to the reality of God's love and its transformative, restorative power is made evident. When we who would naturally have so much that would keep us apart are united in Christ, it reveals something of who God is, of what God can do of the power of the gospel to change and to transform and to unite. And so, as the psalmist says, how good and how pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Now, here's the thing with a message like this, a message that speaks to unity amongst each other. The thing with it is, we know exactly where it is speaking to us. We we feel it. There's that sense of disquiet in our spirit. Uh, I remember uh, a few years ago when the reality was there was disunity between the staff and the leadership team of the time. And if you weren't aware of that, then that's actually really awesome because we really wanted to protect the wider church from that. But in that that time, I had to preach on uh, from the early chapters of 1 Corinthians, which is all about unity. Uh, Paul insists on unity in in the church in, in that place. And that was both really hard going for me, knowing that I was in the midst of and part of the cause of the disunity, but also so good for my soul. Because this is the kind of message where we know where it speaks to us. Whether it's someone in the church that you look down on. Whether it's someone you've conflicted with and now avoid. Whether it's someone that you've done wrong by and you know that there's still a distance and awkwardness between you whether it's someone that you just disagree with, whether it's about politics or theology or anything else, or whether it's even a situation totally outside of the church and unrelated to it, but you are the Christian in the midst of it, the Spirit is speaking to your heart. So as the Spirit speaks to you, as the Spirit speaks to us, because I'm aware of it as I preach it, How do we respond? Well, when unity has been broken, or when it was never there in the first place, the first thing to recognize is that the Spirit is speaking to you. Yes, the other person might have something that they need to do, but that's between them and God. 
If you're here today feeling a sense of conviction if, and, and, and such, then it's on you to respond in obedience. The Spirit is speaking to you this morning, so it's on you to respond. And I would say that the biggest thing that gets in the way of our response, the th- biggest thing that gets in the way of our pursuing unity is actually ourselves. And so the next thing that we need to do then is to pursue humility before God and before others. Put the issue in perspective. Exercise self-awareness. Or if you know that you're not very self-aware, talk about the situation with someone else who will speak the truth to you in love and help you grow in that area. And recognize that no matter how good or right that you might think you might be in that situation, the reality is that you're not perfect. And so be prepared to learn and to change from what's going on. Have, have humility as you approach this issue. Don't come from a place of superiority and perfection because you, you don't have it. Thirdly, recognize that it is, it is okay to disagree. Sometimes it's even necessary, um, especially when matters of real significance and importance are, are at stake. But even in such disagreements, even if they escalate into you know, a conflict as such, you can still engage in that conflict in a godly manner. Evidence the fruit of the Spirit in your life as you disagree and as you work through the conflict. Continue to show love to the other person, to the other party. A love which we know from the Scriptures is fundamentally others-oriented. I mean, it's not that you have to back down from your position as such, but, do, but hold it in a godly manner, loving still the other person. And all of this then culminates to offer and to seek forgiveness and reconciliation. I mean, this is the heart of the gospel, that God took initiative to forgive us and to reconcile us to himself when we had separated ourselves from him. Because we were the guilty party. We were the ones that broke relationship. But in love, Christ died for our sins so that we could be forgiven and restored to relationship with God. Now, forgiveness has to be, I reckon, one of the hardest things, doesn't it? You might not want to be the one seeking forgiveness because to do so means owning up to the fact that, you've, that you're in the wrong. I want to encourage you, though, to look at what you did when you came to Christ. When you came to Christ, you recognised that you were a sinner. We all are. And so there's actually no point in trying to pretend that we're not. That gets us nowhere. Pretending that we're not a sinner keeps us alienated from God. The first step towards that reconciliation is to own and admit that fact. And so when we came to to Christ, you humbled yourself before the almighty God and you humbled yourself to recognise that you were the one in the wrong needing his forgiveness. How much easier it should be for us to approach a fellow sinner just like us to do the same. And so be prepared to seek forgiveness and to admit your fault to a fellow sinner as well. But all that's hard to seek forgiveness. It's also hard to offer forgiveness. You might not want to do that because the reality is offering forgiveness feels stinking unfair. 
It's so unfair. They're the one who has done wrong. And I'm to forgive them? But again, look at God's forgiveness of you. Christ died for it. Well, that's far from fair. In fact, that's grace. And when you can extend that grace to others, and it is grace, and it's a work of supernatural uh, enablement, but when you can extend that grace to others, not still holding their wrong against them, not still wanting them to suffer and to be hurt as you were, but instead just bearing that yourself, just as Christ bore your sins, when you can extend that grace to others, then you are showing them God's grace and you are demonstrating his power and his grace in your own life to do something that naturally you could never do. So if God has been speaking to you today about restoring broken unity, we have said to recognise that the Spirit is speaking to you and so you're the one to respond in obedience, to, to humble yourself, to engage in conflict in a godly way and to offer and to seek forgiveness. But there's also ways in which not only do we need to restore broken unity, but there's also ways in which we can just foster and encourage unity in our midst. In our midst. We can engage in, in actions such as extending welcome to others, to include people who are on the outer, to be hospitable and, and other such things. This is also important for us to do, to, to actively pursue and foster unity. And, and it's part of then what makes life with God's people so enjoyable. I mean, it's, it's so good to meet up with people, to hang out over a meal together, to enjoy the blessing of knowing and getting to know someone who you've not known, to learn and discover new things about them. And even those people who you might think are on the outer, you know, who is like, they're not my people, well, to actually realise, you know what, we've got more in common and there's, this person's you know, massively fascinating and interesting in ways that I never could have told from a surface perception of them. So encourage and foster unity by, by taking actions of reaching out to others and including and connecting with them. I don't know specifically how the Spirit has spoken to you today through his word. But let me lead us in prayer as we respond to it. Uh, know too that there'll be people, and I'll be one of those as well, available to pray for you up the front after the service if that's something that you uh, would value. Or again, remember, you can send a message to prayer at wdbc.com, pardon me, dot, dot au. Um, and have the pastoral care team join with you in, in prayer that, for that. But let's pray together as we respond to what the Spirit has said to us through his word. God, as we come together today, for a start, God, I would pray that we would not just be a bunch of individuals who are in the same room together but that we would be your unified and united church, 
brought together in and through Jesus. Commonly in need of your love and your grace. Equally recipients of it. No one better than anyone else. But instead just all equal before you. And so God, may we express what we have in you together. May we, we are unified, we are united in you. May we express that in our relationships with each other. May we experience the, the blessing of just how good and pleasant it is when we dwell together in unity. So help us to do those things, God, that would encourage it, that would foster it amongst us. Help us to reach outside of ourselves to include someone in a, in a discussion, to invite someone into our home, whatever it might be, God. May we pursue uh, unity together. God, I'm very conscious, though, that it's the kind of message, uh, it's the kind of word from you where your spirit speaks to us, where in our hearts we feel that unease of conviction. And I want to thank you for that. We may not enjoy it, it may not be pleasant, but it's from you and it's part of your work of making us more like you. It's part of your work of making us, of helping us to live under your good rule and authority as your people. So may we not ignore, discount, deny or minimise the ways in which your spirit is speaking to us today. May we hear the Spirit's voice to us. And may we respond in obedience, however it looks. However hard it might be. However unwilling or awkward it might be for us. God, to divide and separate, to walk away, to conflict, all that is natural. May you enable us to do what is supernatural, as you have done for us in Christ. And may then, God, as we unite, as we unify, May just the wonder of your grace, of your love, of your transformative, restorative power just be evident for all to see. May we be a witness of it. May those around us be a witness to it. And may we all then walk in the life forevermore, the abundance of life that you would have for us. God, as we sit with your conviction For us to ignore it and to continue in the division and disunity, that's no fun. Like that, that perpetuates and extends the pain and the suffering. But for us to do what you are calling us to do, 
to reconcile, to restore, then that's where we experience your blessing, where we experience the fullness of life. God, this is hard work. This is impossible work on our part. But we know that what is impossible with man is possible with you. And so, God, I want to pray for your spirit to come upon us in such a way that we are able to do what we could never have imagined we were able to do. You're a good God. You're not asking us to do something for our harm, but only what is for our good. God, you're not asking us to do something that you are unwilling to do. You're not putting something on us um, you know, as someone distant and removed to say, yeah, you go, you go do that. But you've entered into the experience and you have sought us out to reconcile. You have borne the cost of forgiveness for us and have extended us your grace in Christ. God, we can't fathom that, but help us to to grasp the wonder and the reality of that afresh. And in having experienced this from you, God, may, may that help us to offer it to others. You're awesome. We love you. We thank you that you are with us in all things. And we pray, God, that in this way that you would help us to become more like your son under whose good rule and reign we live. We pray it in his name. Amen.